Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Toby Lishtig, the fiction editor of the TLS, uh, and I'm joined today by Bernadine Evaristo, who earlier this week won the Booker Prize in conjunction with Margaret Atwood for her novel Girl, Woman, Other a polyphonic, multi-generational collage of the lives of 12 characters, mostly black women. We've already discussed the controversy over the awarding of a double booker on this week's podcast, and I'm delighted not to have to revisit that now, and instead to welcome Bernadine uh, to the studio and to talk about what really matters, her book. So welcome, Bernadine. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, I guess it's been quite a frenetic couple of days for you. Understatement. <laughs> as soon as the announcement was made, uh, we were whisked off to a press conference and then we had lots of press interviews and then it continued early the next morning and um, I didn't get home till about 10 o'clock last night and up again this morning, but it's all good. Hooray. Yes. <laughs> um, when I was at the ceremony on Monday night, Anna Burns, who was last year's winner mm. for Milkman, gave quite a moving speech, I thought, mm. about what winning the Booker had done for her, for her career, for her finances, obviously sort of the literary recognition and the frenetic last year she's had. Um, apart from the money, obviously, what does it mean for you and what will it do for you, do you think? What it means for me is it's given my work incredible exposure um, internationally because this prize is so important um, and that's what I've always wanted for my writing and yet I've I've really never reached large audiences at all. Um, so I've written eight books but... Most people haven't read them <laughs> and they, they come across them and then they say, oh, I really like your work. Have you, you know, what else have you written? And, you know, then they're curious about what else I've written and they gen up on me and so on. So I feel that a lot of the work of making um, my books known has now been done in terms of this prize and I'll feel the ripple effect of this for quite a while. Um, as I said in my acceptance speech, I am the first black woman to win it and the first black British person to win it. So I think it's historic and significant that this prize has gone to somebody like me writing the kind of book that I have, which is all about black British women. So I think the impact on black women, actually, and perhaps, you know, women of colour and marginalised people and black people in this country and, and perhaps in other places will be huge. I've already experienced a lot of people being very emotional about me winning this prize. People I know, people in my writing community, people on social media saying they were in tears, they were bawling, they couldn't believe it because I'm a black woman. And I think also because I am 60 um, and I've been in this game for nearly 40 years, it's a sign for me that you can just plough ahead decade after decade and then come away with a bit of a 
gift, you know. Is, is it, a, in a way, is it a chance for you to revisit your, your backlist a bit? Because I guess there are going to be translations, not just of this book, but some of your previous books that haven't previously been translated. And maybe it's a chance to, to sort of think about some of the novels you've written earlier in your career that perhaps you I haven't d- thought about yeah, for a while. Yeah, I don't or... know. I mean, the translation rights are coming through, coming in thick and fast, which is what I've always wanted. And I can't quite believe it. Every day there's sort of like Lithuania, you know, Korea, Georgia. This is just incredible. But I'm I'm kind of very I'm already very familiar with my backlist. I've I've always been doing lots of readings, so I'm I'm very much out there as a writer. And I have been reading about my books, reading from my books, sorry, for a long time. So I'm not distanced from my backlist. I would say. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, to the novel itself, um, yes. Girl, Woman, Other. So you've got these twelve characters spanning the generations. Um, I guess it's this is a novel less about Black British experience than the multifariousness of Black British experience, mm. which is the whole point. Is that something you think has been missing from British fiction, or is it is it more that the recognition of that has been missing? You know, are there lots of other of these voices out there that aren't being recognised, or, or do you I, feel like I, it's not I been think, done enough? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um, that has been missing from British fiction. And we know that and have felt that, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have got out there. Do you know what I mean? And like the, the publishing industry for a long time thought it was all right to just publish less than a handful of black British women writers, of which I, I have been one, and ignore the fact that, I don't even know what the statistics are, but ignore the fact that we were writing from very limited perspectives because there were so few of us. I'm hoping that this will change now, you know, because if you win a book, if you win the Booker Prize, it kind of sets a precedent and hopefully publishers will be inspired to sort of diversify their lists a bit more. I was talking to Candice Carty-Williams, who's published her first novel, Queenie, this year, and we were trying to work out how many books by and about black British women have been published this year. And we came to the conclusion there were two. We may be wrong. We may be wrong. But we couldn't think of anybody else. And this doesn't seem like a particularly peculiar year either, presumably. This is a good year. Right? <laughs> right. I'm talking about adult books. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of books coming out by black British women writers, but they're not necessarily about black British women. So there you go. There are the statistics. How many novels are published every year? Do you know? I don't know, but it's definitely thousands. Thousands. So, yeah. so we think there's two of us. Okay. I've so, written twelve. I've written twelve. <laughs> You've written twelve. <laughs> so hopefully this is the this is the floodgates opening. Maybe. Um, there's a talking of what you're saying. There's there's a, a line in your your book when one of the characters says, "Black people have to, well, black people feel the burden of representation, whereas white people only have to represent themselves." And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that burden for yourself, and to what extent it's been a burden, and to what extent it has possibly freed you to write as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the characters' point of view. It's yeah. not my point nope. of view, actually. Although that. it is the point of view of, of, of many writers. They don't want to have to represent whatever sort of demographic they're supposed to represent. But I don't see it as a burden. You know, I've had um, a differing relationship or, you know, varied relationships to the idea of being a black writer over the course of my career. And there was a stage when I was just fed up of it and I thought, you know, don't call me a black writer, I'm just a writer. But actually, I'm at a stage now where I just own it. That is the perspective from which I write. That doesn't mean to say I'm only writing black British characters, because I don't. You know, I've, I've written various stories. But I'm very interested in the African diaspora um, from a British perspective. And that's what I do. That's what I write. I remember Toni Morrison years ago saying, 
I, that's, I'm an African-American writer. That's what I am. I write African-American stories. I'm not ashamed of it. That's how I feel. And there is no limitation to that. Well, think, you, so earlier stories, you've, you've set a story in, in ancient Rome. You've set a yes. story you know, sort of reversing the, 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 sort of the binaries of, the, of, of slavery, but it's still about black British experience. Yes, and, and the, the story um, set in Roman London, in fact, is about a black British girl growing up in Roman London. So, so there is no limitation to that because take, you know, some, one of our most celebrated writers, Ian McEwan, he might not say when he's talking to you in a podcast, you know, I only write about white men. Because he doesn't have to, because he doesn't, there, there's less of that burden. And he, there, but he so. doesn't only do that. That's, yes. that's a bit unfair. But uh, I mean, he writes from that perspective absolutely. and that's what he writes and everybody just accepts that. Yep. Whereas I'm making a point of telling you this is what I'm doing and people are noticing that this is what I'm doing. So I'm kind of... Um, there's an activism about it as well, you know, and it's it's a good thing and it's a positive thing and it's a it's as limitless as anybody else, anybody writing about any demographic. And of course, it's not a sole demographic. One of your points, so we talked about mm. multifariousness, but it's there's there are subgroups in it. So we've got you've got your character um, Amma, who uh, spent some of her life in a lesbian collective in the 1980s, the Republic of Freedomia, I think is that what it's yeah, called? Squat. Yeah, Squat. Squat. Yeah. Um, then you've got uh, the character uh, Bumi, who insists that her, her daughter Carol marries a Nigerian man, and Carol doesn't want to do this. You've got Carol herself, who gets into Oxford and then has to deal with the ludicrous cliqueiness of that of that of that place and there's a very funny line when she's sort of trying to get to grips with the, the mores and she talks about how omelettes are not classy but spanish omelettes are classy <laughs> even though they seem to be made from the same things i was interested in the extent to which this is actually a book about class as well mm. and and the sort of different subgroups within classes in this country which is still it is sort of riven by class it is it, it's a book about many things i think because about the intersection of race and class and gender um, and sexuality um, and I think I, I didn't intend to to sort of sew class through it but it became inevitable in a sense because I was interested in looking at where people start and where they end up and the journey they take to get there so I do that with all of the women you kind of know where they are now in the 21st century the book spans 100 years but then you also find out how they got to to their position now whether they're 19 or 93 because the oldest character is 93 and there's every generation in between and when you start to look at people's journey through life and when you're looking at how we succeed in this society, which is something else that I, I was looking at, I think class is, is factored into that. So there are characters who are born in one class, which is really basically working class or even immigrant class, who then progress to, to middle class you know, from sort of unskilled labour to being professional in whether it's the corporate world or banking or theatre or working in education. We know that we're a class, a class obsessed society and it's something that we tend not to describe in terms of our black populations. You know, people often talk about the working class and they don't somehow think they're including People of colour, yeah, they, it often, most of whom are working class, the, actually. Often the word white is attached to working class. You hear a lot about yes. the white working class, yes. but it's, it's absolutely true. And it's are... ridiculous. And also, I come from a working class family. Working class can be variously described, but my mother was a school teacher, but my father was an immigrant, Nigerian. He was a welder. Um, I'm now a booker-winning writer <laughs> and a <laughs> professor, you know, and you know, listen to how I speak. You know, I'm, you would not think necessarily that I come from the class that I come from but I do and that's been a very long journey and at some point in my life I well I know when it was when I was 14 I changed the way I spoke in order to kind of assimilate better ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And, and to what extent is your book then a celebration of that fluidity and to what extent your character's hidebound? Because there's one, there's one moment when it's Amma's mother says of her father, he's this essentially well-meaning, I would say, but quite patriarchal character, um, a, a Ghanaian man, and she says he's of his time and culture. So there's a sense that he is somehow stuck in, 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 in what made him. To what extent is that true of the characters in your book more generally and, and the Britain that you see and describe? That they're, they're stuck, they're sort of um, unable to move beyond their situation. Yeah. I think all my characters move beyond their situation. Yeah. You know, and that's not necessarily what I was thinking of when I wrote it. But they're all, no, as I said, they're all on some kind of journey to improve their lives. And I, I, I like to put a positive spin on things. I'm not a bleak writer. I want my work to have, to, as you say, to, to celebrate, not to dismiss the struggles, but also to sort of balance that with celebration and for there to be hope embedded in it. And, and there's um, a very hopeful ending. We won't give it away, obviously. It's a very hopeful ending. Yeah. I was not going to write a, a novel about 12 primarily black British women and end it on a bleak note because we know that our society at the moment feels quite bleak anyway. I wanted my women, even though when sometimes they are victims of circumstance, I want them to rise above that and to be triumphant in whatever little way is um, relevant to the situation that they're in. So sometimes difficult things happen to them. Sometimes bad things happen to them. Sometimes they do spend years struggling, but they are not defeated by that. And that's kind of, you know, I kind of want to inspire with that. So, so these women are... They're works of the imagination. They come out of my imagination, but they're also the product, in, in a way, of yeah, of everybody I've ever met, everybody I've ever spoken to, all the black women I've known, all the generations of black women that I've known, and I'm kind of like that. I've kind of absorbed who they are, and through osmosis, I'm kind of like then recreating them in the novel. And I want people to see themselves in it, and that's one of the things that black women readers say. This is a book where we see ourselves because there are so many of them as well. And it's not that they necessarily fully identify with any single character, 
but because it's written from a black woman's perspective in this country, there are so many things that people go, uh huh, uh huh, oh yeah, yeah, I've been there, blah, blah, blah. So to me, it's kind of, it's showing us the possibilities of who we can be in a positive way. And actually, I must say, reading it as a white man, I found it. Firstly, incredibly refreshing to to be given that multiplicity of perspectives from something that's very different from my own experience. But also, you seem to completely nail the universal because there's nothing that seems, un, un, you know, difficult to understand or, or inaccessible or anything like that. And I guess that's sort of the gold standard of this sort of writing that you're giving voice to a, a particular of experience, but allowing readers to any reader to engage. Yeah, with that's it. that's interesting. That sort of white middle class men are liking my book. Yeah. you know, because because. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking of a readership, to be honest, but I was thinking, I do want black women to know that this is a book about them. But then when you put a book, a book out there in the world, you don't know who's going to read it. But if it does have a universality to it, and that only comes through the specifics, right, of character and writing with integrity and, and, and making sure your characters are interesting and rich and flawed and all those things, then that's fantastic. And voice. I think, you know, voice, voice. is really important for this. And so, in fact, for, for listeners who haven't read the novel and don't really know sort of how it's structured or whatever, you've got these 12 characters. They're essentially each, well, they're each quarter a chapter, aren't they? And it's loosely structured around this theatrical performance. So some are involved in it in some way, some attend an after-party, some sort of read about it. The way you've written it, I mean, it's essentially a series of single-sentence paragraphs without full stops, which seems to me a really brilliant way of dealing with the kind of the close third person. So you rove in and out of, of these characters' thoughts with this voice that constantly changes and the diction changes and the, the lexicon changes. And I, I thought that was done really, really brilliantly. And I just wondered sort of how did that evolve and what other writers did you draw yeah. inspiration on for that kind of technique? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a, their single sentence paragraphs because I think that might put people off. Oh, sorry, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> the shape on the pages are sort of, well, I call it, this may sound a bit pretentious, but I call it a pro-poetic patterning. Yep. That, in that it's not poetry, but it's sort of a bit, it's a bit like, poetry but the writing flows on the page and there aren't that many full stops but there are lots of commas and the spaces in between the text gives you breathing space so that form I actually used it in my previous my um, yeah my previous book Mr Loverman where I had the main character Barrington who's a gay 74 year old man telling his story in the first person and I needed to find a device to tell for his his wife to tell her story that would not compete with his voice and they're both from Antigua and they're both the same age so I found a sort of form which was the form that I guess I use in Girl Woman Other which is the same the same kind of thing on the page kind of quite poetic I also told her voice in the second person also to, to distinguish between his but with this book I found it was a very free-flowing writing experience and I hope it's a free-flowing reading experience it is it yes. really is. So once you're in it, you're into the rhythm of it, the rhythm of the language. And don't forget, I did begin as a poet, so I'm always paying very special attention to the, the way in which I'm using language. Once you're in it, you're inside the women's heads, even though, and you're hearing their voices, even though it's in the third person, as you say. And then I'm going back into the past, I'm coming up to the future. You're, there's interiority, there's exteriority, and you're kind of floating along their subconscious. And then you float into another character's head, and the same things happen, but they're very different. And that's kind of has an, a cumulative effect, until in the end of it, you've just been inside the heads of these 12 women and hopefully had something of an experience. You have. <laughs> uh, and aren't too traumatised by us. 
<laughs> Definitely not traumatised. And so, yeah, you, you talk about having worked as a poet. I mean, you've written a verse novel before. You've yes. also worked in the theatre. And there's a kind of, yes. you've got this construct of, of this theatre performance and the, the polyphonous nature of, I guess, this book. There's a kind of theatricality to that and yes. form and theme and style seem to kind of meld quite well. Do you still work in theatre? No, and, I don't. Or? But I'd like, to, I'd like to go back to writing for theatre because I miss, I miss that world and I, I'd love to have work on the stage again. I left writing for theatre really properly about... 30-something years ago. Um, but yeah, I like to inhabit my characters. So when I'm writing them, I feel like I'm inside them. And that's what we do as actors, or what I used to do as actors. Do you know what I mean? You become your characters as much as you can. You know, you try to experience their thoughts and their feelings and their lives. And I think that comes through with my work because there is a performative element to my work. You know, people say it's very lively, very vibrant. Oh, I can completely see this being staged in some way. or be, so, so, I mean, I, I presume there's an audio book on the way if there isn't one already. There is one at the there moment. Is, I mean, I, I must go and listen to that because I, I, yes. I imagine it would just it would work extremely well in that yes. format. So the characters do come alive. And I think that is to do with my theatrical background. You know, um, not all writers are particularly interested in writing the kinds of kind of very lively leap of the page characters that I do they may be more plot driven or the voice may be quieter whereas I'm quite a bold daring kind of risk taking writer in terms of the way in which I create characters what you don't have is this sort of and I, I use hectoring cautiously because it can be a good thing as well but you don't have this sort of hectoring single narrative voice that says I am the narrator and this is my world mm. instead you've got this yeah this kind of and the, and the characters are uh, you know i like to put humor into my work although it, it, i have to say it does happen naturally but i don't i'm not reverent towards my characters yeah so i think sometimes people hear about this book and they think oh it's a very serious book about the tragedy of being a black british I know, woman i found it brilliantly irreverent so for example yeah. you've got the the carol character who mm. is this uh, she, she works in the city and there's a kind of gently ribbing element to the opening paragraphs about her that she's sort of part of this world and you know whether or not you like that world you can sort of see the flaws in it and then we're suddenly taken back to a very traumatic incident mm. when she's much younger and it's you know nothing as crude as is explained to you how she gets to this world but you, you, you suddenly from going from this sort of slightly distant gently mocking device you're suddenly with her and empathising with her. And I think that works very well throughout the novel, yeah. the sort of the kind of the zoom in and zoom out. That's right. But also I'm quite critical. Do you know what I mean? It's not, I'm, I don't write my characters uncritically. And also we see each character through other people. So there's four mothers and daughters. So we see the mothers through the daughters and the daughters with mothers. And that's, that's quite fertile territory, I would say, for humour. Um, <laughs> yes. And also pe- the characters are quite contradictory, or shall we say hypocritical in some ways. So you have Amma, the radical lesbian feminist who feels that she's very principled, but actually she was spotted in the Serial Lovers Cafe, <laughs> which is a cafe selling 200 kinds of breakfast cereal by her daughter. So it's like, you know, characters cut through the BS in terms of the seeing... The daughter calls her a feminazi at one she point. She calls her a feminazi. <laughs> you know, so that's... I really enjoy that because I think that makes my that makes them human because that's who we are. You know, I have been known to read Hello! magazine. People might think that I spend my evenings reading the TLS because I'm a professor. And writing for the you TLS, know. we should say. <laughs> yes, and I do write for the TLS as well. But, you know, I love stylist, styling Hollywood. It's great, you know. So we're, we're made up of many different... We have many different aspects to ourselves. Um, we talked. We talked a bit about hope and hopefulness of the novel. Um, 
to what extent is that a reaction for you about things that are going on now? And there was actually there was a TLS piece you wrote. You reviewed Renier de Lodge's um, why, I'm, why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And you say in that, in Britain, we are taught not to see race. And I wondered whether you feel that's changing at all or whether you feel actually we're, we're going backwards on that particular point. And then more generally, you know, <laughs> as I say, whether this, whether the hope in this novel is somehow a kind of way I of I think the hope against... is just me. It's just you. Well, I hoped I'd win the booker and then I did. <laughs> and then <you> did. <laughs> I do think we, it, race is not part generally speaking, unless something um, dramatic happens, usually traumatic. Race is not part of the national conversation in this country. When I go to America, it is part of the conversation. You know, I very rarely have discussions about race in the UK that are not generated by me. And you know? obviously you think it should be more part of the conversation. I think it should because yeah. it's something that we, you know, we're, we are living in a, a society where race is an issue. Um, and you know, if you look about, look at the disproportionate number of young black men who are incarcerated, yep. or who are, you know, sectioned under the Mental Health Act. If you look at employment, if you look at the fact that I'm one of 26 black women professors in this country out of 17,000 professors. Or well, the two novels about black female British experience would ever published this year. <laughs> Absolutely. So clearly, there's a problem. But it's it's always up to the people of colour to sort of generate the conversation and to try to try to sort of um, instigate change and, and, and so on. And I just don't think we've really found, as a nation, we've really found the way to tackle issues around race, but also other forms of inequality that helps people bring those ideas on board without becoming defensive or dismissive. Because still today, I know people who will talk about racist incidents or being the sort of, um, I don't want to use the word victim, but victim of kind of microaggressions and so on. And people say, oh, no, that, that doesn't didn't happen. Nobody's racist, of course. Even the word racist is a difficult word because nobody is racist. Nobody wants to be seen as racist. Like men, no, how many men are sexist will, will admit that they're sexist? So these words kind of provoke a defensive mechanism that shuts down the doors. So how do we have this conversation? So you talk about unconscious bias. That's a kind of softer way of approaching the sort of different ways in which people treat people who are not like them differently. But then sometimes it's not unconscious, it is just bias. So it's a, it's a difficult subject. Well, hopefully this book, winning the, the Booker Prize, will in, in some way prove a bit of a corrective to that situation. Maybe. So, maybe. Help it. Help it a bit. <laughs> help it a bit. Yes. And on that, I guess we should, we should end there. But thank you so much thank for coming to talk to me. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.